Welcome to Mission 150. Today we will continue our conversation about the first missionary we sent as a church 150 years ago or so. The reason why we're celebrating his name, John Nevins Andrews. And we're delighted to have with us again Dr. Gilbert M. Valentine, who recently retired from teaching at La Sierra University, but still teaches in as an adjunct in the university's HMS Richards Divinity School. Dr. Valentine is a prolific author and is a very versatile scholar, having published several books and many articles on subjects ranging from the mid-19th century all the way up to the 1970s. Gil Valentine, thank you for joining us again today. Thank you again for the invitation. It's good. So, as we touched on in an earlier podcast, actually the first Adventist to go as a missionary is a Polish immigrant to the United States, a man called Mikol Tchaikovsky, who had become a Seventh-day Adventist in America and went to Europe in 1864 as an unofficial missionary. Thanks to him, a group of Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping Adventists had been established at Tramala in Switzerland. And in 1869, that group made contact with the Seventh-day Adventist denomination in the United States. Gil, tell us about Andrew's role in those early contacts between European and American Adventists. Thanks, David. In 1869, when the Swiss Sabbath keepers made their first contact with the church. John Andrews was just moving out of his role as a general conference president and moving into becoming the review editor for a while. So the correspondence uh, came uh, to him, was directed to him. He was able to read French and German at least. Right. And of course, they write to the editor of the review because as we described in our earlier podcast, the review is how they discover that there is a Seventh-day Adventist yeah. church in America. So yes. they write to the editor of the review. So as a result of, of that initial correspondence, an agreement was made, I think through Andrews in consultation with James White, that one of their young pastors, the 26-year-old James Erzberger, would come and visit Battle Creek to learn more about the Adventist church. So he arrived in May in time for the general conference session and stayed on this James Erzberger, a Swiss um, Cole Porter come itinerant pastor who had linked up with the Sabbath believers in um, Switzerland just 12 months before. So he came and stayed in the home of James and Earl White for a while, got sick, spent some time in the Battle Creek Hospital Sanitarium, and then went to live with uh, John Andrews in Rochester for several months, sort of receiving personal tuition mentoring, studying Adventist beliefs and Adventist polity. Um, and it was under John Andrews' mentorship that this James Erzberger was ordained at a camp meeting in the Northeast and then sent back uh, to Switzerland to be a minister amongst the, the believers there. Over time, he encountered some problems and dropped out of the ministry. But, but John... Andrews became the liaison with this group of believers in in Switzerland. All right. Um, so that sort of that helps to explain why he gets sent when the Adventist Church finally decides to send its first missionary. It decide, that's what that helps to explain why Andrews goes. But do we know had Andrews been interested in foreign mission work? Did he pers did he require persuading? 
to, to, be, to, to go or was he quite willing to go? I don't know that John Andrews had any deep-seated vision of becoming a foreign missionary. <laughs> right, like which, some, some, which some, some American Protestants did, of course. Actually, that it was, it, mission was, was, a, was a common theme amongst 19th century American Protestants, and there were people who felt that very strong call from a relatively young age to be foreign missionaries. So uh, John Andrews wasn't one of those. No, no. The vision dawned slowly with John Andrews through the contacts with, with the Swiss believers right. and, and with, with James Erzberger. Um, but uh, he, he had also worked with the group of Sabbath believers. They were all watchmakers. Most of them were watchmakers living in watchmaking villages. In Switzerland, there's a surprise. <laughs> so he, he helped them um, develop markets, tried to help them develop markets for their product in, in America. And he oh. actually studied up on the watchmaking industry, both in America and in Switzerland, to be able to help them. Um, he became informed. That was the kind of person John, John Andrews was. Um, he seems to be a very curious person. He seems to be very curious about knowledge. Uh, from your description in last week and, and now, he seems to be, okay, there is, there is this thing over here. I can read about it. I can learn. Uh, and then perhaps have a contribution to make in, in whatever capacity. So intellectually curious. Intellectually curious, yes. yeah. Very open to new experiences. Yeah, he was curious about everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, the, the question, David, I think more than could, did Andrews have to be persuaded to go overseas, the question I think is probably did the church have to be persuaded yes. to send someone overseas? And and we touched on that in an earlier podcast. So we've described we've described that how it's a it's a it's a it's an eleven year struggle uh, that, that James White is pushing and Ellen White is convinced, but uh, American Adventists aren't convinced that they have this duty to the rest of the world, and it only gradually dawns on them. But but it's in eighteen seventy three that the church really decides, I think, that yes, we have to send, but it's still another 18 months before they send Andrews. So that's why, did he require persuading or did it just take them a while to decide who the person they would send, who that person would be? This was an era in the church where, where James White's health was not the best and there were severe leadership tensions amongst the four leaders at the top, Wagoner, Uriah Smith, John Andrews and James White all three trying to find ways of relating to uh, less than fully functional James, whose, whose health was damaged. You touched last week that he'd had a stroke, and I think he had another stroke, didn't he? Yes, two or three strokes, in, in fact. So his health isn't good. And yet he still wants to be in charge, but he's, he's, he's not physically quite able, so that creates a difficult situation, really. Yeah. And, and should those around him regard him as an apostle and they just do what he said? Or should they participate in discussions about what needed to be done? <laughs> so that was part of the, the dynamic there. And in that process, the leaders, James White particularly, wasn't so sure of John Andrews. Was he the person to send? And so it took 12 months, I think, for them to come to terms with Yes, this was the time, and John Andrews was the person. In the meantime, they had become, um, had begun a major economic recession. So financially, this was not a good time to send someone overseas. Wow. 
and and in the process, John Andrews had been approached about the task, was willing to go, but then couldn't sell his house. And he wanted to sell his house before he went so that he could settle his debts and go as a free man. So all of those kind of problems in the background slowed the process down until that fateful September day when finally, actually with George Butler as the chair of the GC Executive Committee, finally said, we've got to resolve this. We can't post procrastinate longer. Let's send this good man. Let me, let me ask you about the, the tensions um, between the generosity of mission and the need at home. Because you've got some leaders here that are strong, that have a lot of, of contributions to make. It, it takes years to make a leader. You know, you don't just wake up one day and you have what you need. No, it takes years of education and struggle and practice as a local church pastor, as, as a scholar and so on. And now you have these, you know, f four you mentioned. I'm sure there were, you know, a few others. What do you send to mission? Do you send some of your best? Or do you keep those at home to continue yeah. developing? You know, there's always a tension in that. And did they have, did they see that through? Or? And, and it's a tension that has been there throughout Adventist history ever since, the, ever since the start. So it's interesting that it was right there at the beginning. So tell us more about that, Gil. Yes, there was a reluctance to send John in one sense because they might well need him at home if James's health deteriorated further or just because of his experience and his scholarship. Um, he he was, had just finished his work on the Sabbath, the history of the Sabbath, and he was a kind of a, a scholarly spokesperson for the church in America. So yeah. for all of those good reasons, they, they were not sure that he was the best one to send. Um, and so yet... What, is, it, is it because he has this personal contact with Erzberger and he's been in correspondence with them? Is it something to do with his ability to speak languages? What, what is it? Yeah, I think it was his ability to, not so much to speak languages, because he wasn't very good at that, actually, but he could read languages. Ah. Um, and, and if there was going to need to be correspondence or publishing or whatever in the new field, some skill of that was, was essential. And he'd become, by this time, very closely related to the Sabbath keepers there in, in Switzerland, in Tremelin and Nucatel. And, and he, um, he was a known figure, known to Erzberger. And, and so there was a natural fit, in a sense, for him. Okay. So they send him. They did. What was that like? Uh, <laughs> they, obviously, there are no airplanes. Um, he needs to, to go in, into a ship. How long does it take? What are the mechanics of actually going somewhere? Well, for the John Andrews family of three, plus the Swiss uh, believer as well, Adamir Vumier, um, it was who, an 11 who had day come over and, and Vumier had come over to, to visit the Adventists in the States, and so he's going back with John. And for those who missed last week's episode with John's two children, Charles and Mary, because John is a widower, his wife had died a couple of years before, so it's a party of John, his two children, Charles and Mary, and this, this Swiss believer, Albert Vuillemier. Yeah, actually, Adimar Vuillemier. Adimar, Adimar Vuillemier, yes. He was the brother of the Albert, and the Albert Vuillemier was the senior elder of all that little network of six 
Everest companies, Mark Sabbath keeping companies. You guys are absolutely amazing. How, how you've entered these people's lives and how you know them as almost an extension of your own family. No, no, that's another cousin. Uh, it's, uh, I, I love it. Thank, thank you for all the dedication that you've had so people like me don't have to and we can just listen to, to what happened. So, well, thank you, Sam. It's almost as if I've lived with the Andrews family for several years. Yes, I can see that. <laughs> they left New York on September 15, Tuesday afternoon, a, a monumental date in Adventist history. Yes. And it took them 11 days to get across to Liverpool in, in England. They, they stopped Liverpool. off in Liverpool <laughs> on the way to Switzerland because John wanted to um, touch base with the Seventh-day Baptists in England to see if that might be a way to enter with the Adventist message to, to Sabbath keepers already in England. He had already corresponded with William Jones, the pastor of the Seventh-day Baptist Church in London, very prominent figure. And he traveled with this uh, William Jones down to the Cotswolds to visit a company of Sabbath keepers and then up to Glasgow to visit with another company. And he tried to make contacts all around England, not very successfully. It was difficult to, to kind of break through. But he made good friends with this William Jones and would come back several times during his years in Europe to stay at the Jones's home. So they were good brothers in, in Sabbath keeping and in the Sabbath faith. Yes. <clears throat> then he went across to, uh, through Paris, arriving, I think, in Switzerland, October 26, well, October 16, uh, 1974. 1874. This was a homecoming for Adi Ma. 1874, Gil, you said 1974 by mistake, but 1874. Sorry, 1874, yeah, we can't jump 100 years, 1874. Yes, so this was his first introduction to this company of about 50 or 60 Sabbath-keeping believers that were becoming Adventists in about six different villages there in, in Switzerland. It's very striking that John, who was a widower um, and still probably grieving his wife, who'd only died a couple of years before, it's, it's striking that he's willing to take his children with him as missionaries to Europe, but it's also notable that they're willing to go. And I think we would do well to honor Charles and Mary's commitment and willingness to go as well as their fathers. Um, how did they find Europe? These two youngsters, early teens at the time, <laughs> found the journey a bit distressing to start with because they got seasick. <laughs> but uh, they became a great help actually to their dad in adjusting to mission life because they were younger, more able to adapt, more ready to pick up the language, more able to pick up the language. Uh, and this was one of the first difficulties that John Andrews actually found. Um, I mean, he, he had the stress of being a single parent in a new field now, a new culture with two youngsters. Um, and it was a problem for language. He could read French, but he learned to his dismay that speaking French was much more difficult. <laughs> I can sympathize with that. I can sympathize with that as somebody who can read and even write French, but the, the speaking is, is rather more tricky. Particularly the, the thick accent of Swiss speaking. Ah. I mean, French speaking Swiss. <laughs> so right. that complicated it even more. And John Andrews' 49-year-old brain found it difficult to cope with language learning at that level, though he could read okay. 
Um, so it was a real struggle. But Mary and Charles, because of their more supple brains, I think, in language learning skills, were able to help him um, make that difficult journey. Let's talk about his children for a bit. They, they've trusted God all their lives, but that trust was not honored when their mother died. Mm. Mm. If God is all-powerful and then we lost our mom and we, we, you know, we lost her, she, di she died, and now the church is sending us to a new territory and, and we believe God will be with us. But there are obviously a lot of tensions in that suffering. Suffering because you're you're uprooted from your own yeah. from your own friends and, and your own family, going to a, a, a strange land somewhere else, different food, different customs, different everything. And all of this because the message of, of Jesus, especially the these the special message of, of Revelation, these three special messages. They had to be delivered all over the world. Let's do this. Okay, I will go. They're there. Were they connected to the mission or were they a bit resentful that this whole thing was happening to them? I think at the deepest level, their father's mission was their mission. Mm. They were really deeply committed to helping him succeed and to, to share the gospel and, and the news of a soon coming savior. Um, so they had been baptized shortly after their mother's death. Um, in 1872 and and so for them it was a kind of a new commitment well not a new commitment but uh, a fresh a renewed of their yeah of their youth to the cause um, and and that was encouraging to their father they, they were a close-knit spiritual team they enjoyed family worships and very quickly even though the children couldn't go to school and they didn't go to school in this new setting they became involved in helping their father produce the magazine that they decided to produce, the, the Signs of the Times, the French Signs of the Times. How so they became involved in a very practical way in his mission. How did they learn French if they didn't go to school? I think they had people come to the house to learn. They did go to language school for a short time in, in the little local school in Nucatel, but only for a short time because money was in short supply. That was part of the dilemma here. The church didn't have any formal policy for funding mission. Right. This was meant to be self-funded from the Sabbath believers in Switzerland, and that didn't work out so well. Oh, they had to send money from America from a very early stage. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So John Andrews had to cut corners all, all around, and in a sense, they taught themselves the language by studying the books themselves at home, resolving that they wouldn't speak English. Right. John has a famous contract that he signs with Mary, right, that they agree they'll only talk French to each other when they're in their home. Isn't that right? Yeah. That's a commitment. Yeah. <laughs> it really was a commitment. And, of course, John was trying to learn German as well and pick up some Italian. Of course he was. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, but, you know, it's, he has to because how can you be a mission leader in Europe if, you, if you're only speaking even two languages? You have to speak more if you want to be effective outside of Switzerland. Wow. Or even in Switzerland because Switzerland is both French and German and Italian speaking. It, it is the place to connect to all the other yeah, places. But, but even Switzerland is multilingual. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a big task. Gil, many missionaries... 
have arrived to find an existing setup that they can just slot into. There's also, for example, when my parents went as missionaries to India in the mid-1960s, there was a well-established Adventist presence and there'd been missionaries going there for more than 60 years. So it's still an enormous wrench as it was for my parents because you have to adjust to new languages, new cultures, food, new food, uh, which can be a a shock. Um, Everything is different. And so it's still enormously challenging for a cross-cultural missionary because of that need to adapt to a different culture and to different perspectives. But here we have John Andrews He has to adjust to a new culture. He has to single parent two young children. And at the same time, he has to establish the Seventh-day Adventist Church's mission work in Europe. That's an immense set of challenges. Did he have a steep learning curve? (laughs) The steepest of learning curves, I think, David, (laughs) on on many fronts, on many fronts. Um, When... John Andrews went to Switzerland to meet with this group of uh, Sabbath-keeping believers. It was really new territory in, in many ways and, and a, a, a fresh enterprise that, as you say, he had to get started, even though there were Sabbath-keeping believers there. The reason for this is that those Sabbath-keepers had fallen onto hard times in, in uh, some sad ways. The, the publishing enterprise, the press, that the previous informal, unofficial missionary had established had actually gone bankrupt. And yes. there were disgruntled creditors and their neighbours in the villages all around. So this was kind of almost a hostile environment to start with that John Andrews found himself in. And then on top of that, that earlier missionary, the unofficial one, had abandoned his wife and children and gone off to the east towards Romania with his secretary. And that had left a very bad taste in in the neighbourhoods where these little Sabbath-keeping companies had been established. And John Andrews had to to face that. Um, And there was, of course, as you say, the cultural differences. (laughs) Um, Not only learning the language, but John Andrews had to come to terms with um, the fact that their bathrooms were different, their food items were different, their customs were different, and and he had to embark on this really steep learning curve to to come to terms with that. How how do you cope with believers for whom table wine is a regular part of the the day's (laughs) menu, and he's a teetotaler? Um, so he, he had to adjust to that. That wasn't a journey that they made easily. And what he found was that his plain speaking American approach, undiplomatically addressing problems, which, which was the, Amer- the Adventist custom in America, <laughs> didn't work so well in, in Europe. And, and that was part of his steep learning curve because he gave offense to start with. And he was familiar with the watchmaking industry in America and somewhat in in Switzerland. And when he tried to advise them on their business and the unwisdom of making certain investments, that didn't go down so well either. (laughs) (laughs) So he had had to learn from mistakes. And the learning curve was was really very steep. 
But he did over time. He was willing to learn, willing to reflect. He couldn't call it culture shock, but that's what it was. He didn't know the term then. But later he reflected on it and felt that slowly he had indeed become European and could accept differences in culture that were differences, not bad or worse. <laughs> that, that took a, a little time, but he arrived there and eventually saw himself as European. Today, as we send every missionary in the Adventist church that is deployed officially, they go through a three-week mission institute process that helps them, yes, that helps them to, to at least anticipate some of that culture shock and, and many techniques of how to deal with that. But Andrews had none of this. Was he successful in Switzerland and, and how was his family as they adapted to this? What happened? Yeah. As, as he arrived and, and built relationships with the Sabbath believers, um, how to go about the task of mission presented real challenge. And he found, again, this is part of the learning curve, David, <laughs> he found that it wasn't easy to just go to a village and set up a tent and run a mission. No, like that's right. Like he did in America. A lot of people find that still when they go to Europe. Uh, that, that is the recurring theme. Absolutely. <laughs> that is constantly happening. People come over and say, I put up a tent and it did not, the magic did not happen. The methods that work, the methods that work, worked in the new world didn't work in the old world is one of the things he discovered, right? Yeah. And James White was a bit critical of him for this. Why didn't you follow the American method? That's worked successfully over here. Why didn't you implement it there? And, and it just didn't work. Um, first of all, James, uh, John Andrews had to get a license from the civic authorities to preach. That was something new. <laughs> yeah. and, and if he went to a new town, he had to get a, a license for that area. So that was difficult. You had to um, hire halls. It was difficult to obtain them. Sometimes the halls were inside hotels, and that wasn't the best environment with a bar just down the hallway. <laughs> and if you had meetings in homes, the homes were all crowded together in a row house or in a tenement building. And the neighbors knew everything that you did. And they heard you singing and they didn't like it. <laughs> and if they were Catholic or a state uh, or Protestant established churches, they created difficulties. So John Andrews, in consultation with his believers there in, in uh, Switzerland, decided that the best way to overcome those limitations and those obstacles was to launch a journal in the model of the signs of the times and to establish a subscription base and reach across the, the barriers of culture and geography and language and, and spread the message through this magazine. So that's where he focused his energy and attention. So let me understand this. <laughs> this is going to be cool. John Andrews realized that in order to fulfill mission, he had to use media. And adapt to local circumstances, yeah. Yes, that's a great lesson for us, it's isn't a it? It's a great lesson. lesson. But it was a, a very important one. Because yeah. pr pr many people don't consider print to be media. But of course, it, it was the media of the time. Yeah. And everybody read newspapers. It was, in, in some ways, a more literate culture than today because everybody was reading the same things. Uh, it, but to an extent... He tried the media of correspondence, of writing letters, <laughs> advertised in the newspapers, again, media, <laughs> placing advertisements. Anybody interested in the Sabbath, please write to us. And that worked to start with, but it became hugely time consuming, writing letters to every individual person. 
So the, the move towards a magazine was a much more efficient and, and productive way. I'm blown away because the, the same, uh, given the different constraints and technology, it's pretty much the same conversations we have today. You know, we are trying to, to reach uh, people that are less and less interested, it seems, in having their, you know, doors knocked about something. Right. And we are now trying to use media in different ways and build relationships. But building relationships is expensive because you need to have people on our end writing to, to those. So, you know, some parts of the world are using chatbots to do the same. And it's, it's fascinating that from the very first missionary, those are the questions that everyone who says, I will go, yes. needs to contend with. Yeah, That's... absolutely. And those issues, Sam, were complicated by budget issues. <laughs> oh, well, it's no different than today. <laughs> <laughs> the General Conference didn't have a clear budget. They had some funds that they'd collected for mission. But were those funds meant to pay salaries or living expenses or just paper? and printing costs. <laughs> Did they have tithe and offerings already established very well at this point, or I presume not? No, no, just a central fund of about $2,000 at the General Conference. And, and the expectation was that the Sabbath believers would fund the mission, but they had fallen into difficult economic circumstances. Right, as you and described. There were no funds available easily from them. So John Andrews was forced to rely on his own capital resources and then be reimbursed from the General Conference. And conscientious person that he was, he was exceptionally careful about what he spent for menu and for food and for wages. Where the lines were drawn there was very murky and he felt under great pressure, wanting to do the right thing. And in fact, suffered from ill health and an impoverished set of circumstances that, that almost ended the mission when he got pneumonia and almost died because of the very tight living constraints, because of an inadequate budget. Yeah. The remarkable thing, Gil, in the face of all these obstacles is that Andrews does manage to implant the Seventh-day Adventist Church into Europe. Uh, that's, that's a remarkable achievement uh, and one we shouldn't lose sight of. Successfully planting the, the, the gospel and the Advent message, not just in Switzerland, but in countries all around that area. Right. And, and nurturing the growth of communities in Germany. And uh, yeah, it, it is remarkable. I, I think a, a real sign of God's blessing on the growth of the movement. Nurturing communities. I like that expression. That's, thank you for that, Gil. Well, the story ends in tragedy. His daughter died, and then, well, everyone we're talking about eventually died, obviously. <laughs> but the tragedy part is that his daughter died uh, uh, very early on. Uh, tell us about that. And John Andrews ended up dying with the same disease. Tragic yes. set of circumstances. Um, because of the kind of cramped quarters that they were living in, and somewhat unhealthful atmosphere. If someone gets sick, disease in a household spreads fairly easily. And uh, apparently in the upstairs room, there was a, one of the wives, of, a wife of one of the workers contracted maybe tuberculosis. She was coughing and developed a chronic cough. Mary, at the age of 15, picked up that cough 
and couldn't get rid of it. And John Andrews was away and couldn't help her. Her situation deteriorated. This was in 1877, 1878, she fell into deeper problems with the illness. Fortunately, in mid-1878, the General Conference called John Andrews back to Battle Creek for a General Conference session. And John Andrews, in desperation, brought at his own expense his ill daughter to see if they could get treatment under John Kellogg at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Um, Mary went straight into the sanitarium and died several weeks later. Of she tuberculosis, right? Tuberculosis, right? Tuberculosis. They called it in that era the rapid consumption. It, it took her life very quickly. And of course, at that era, although they suspected that the disease was contagious somehow, they didn't know how, whether it was through liquids or breath or whatever, they didn't understand coughing. So to minister to a person suffering from consumption or tuberculosis, you had to be close and it was easy to get contaminated or infected yourself. And it seems that in nursing and caring for Mary in those last days in the Battle Creek sand, John Andrews himself became infected. He'd been advised by the doctor, Kellogg, to be careful. But in past eras, John Andrews had neglected his family yes. in the sake of the cause. And Mary pled with him not to leave. Don't leave me, Father. So John Andrews really felt the need to stay by. And he, he paid the price. Um, it took several years for the disease to develop in his own life, but it was diagnosed when he was visiting England in support of the mission of Loughborough, um, I think in, the, in 1879. And 1880, I think it was. I think What's 1880 that? when he visited, I think 1880, yeah. the summer of 1880 when he visited Loughborough. Yeah. So he went back to, uh, to his work there in, in Switzerland, uh, keeping the magazine going, Slowly over time, his ability to, to move out and preach uh, began to diminish. Um, eventually, he had to give up preaching itself. But still, what were you to do in those days? No health care policy, <laughs> no retirement policy as such. And the sense of duty was incredibly strong. So you stayed by the duty. You wanted to share the message because the Lord was coming and, and he just stayed by that sense of duty to the end of his days, to life eventually just uh, ran out and he died from, from the same disease, from tuberculosis, under very uncomfortable circumstances. In Switzerland? In Switzerland. Yeah, he could never get back to, Amer to America. What, what year was that? What year was that? 1883. So he dies in Switzerland. And wasn't he still correcting proofs? for the French signs of the times, almost up till his deathbed? In, in his bed, right to the end. In fact, writing articles, almost to the end. Sort of a superhuman um, exertion of discipline to get deadlines met. <laughs> um, Mary had been such a help to him on the proofreading and, uh -huh. and, and in the press. And so now that, that had to be given to others. He had a young Swiss helper, Jean Vumier, um, but very sad 
um, last days for John Andrews. What about his Minute son? to the end. What about his son, Gil? Charles Andrews stayed on after John died. As a very magnanimous gesture, George Butler had arranged, George Butler was the president of the GC, he'd arranged for John Andrews' aged mother, Sarah, to travel across to Europe to be with her son when he died. That was a very gracious gesture. Yeah. And, and that grandmother stayed on in Europe for a few years and helped in the uh, nurture of Charles, making his way through the grief. But Charles stayed on until at some later time he came back to Battle Creek and joined the publishing house in, in Battle Creek. And the great story is Charles doesn't die of tuberculosis and he remains faithful. And his son, who he names John N. Andrews, Charles's son he names after his father, John N. Andrews II becomes the first Adventist missionary to work among Tibetan-speaking people on the western borders of China. They go even further. Yeah. And actually, one of the things we hope uh, later this year is to have a descendant of John N. Andrews join us on a podcast who recently was involved in a mission uh, experience. That will be amazing. So the, the legacy continues. Gil, what would you say was John Andrews' greatest achievement? And why should Seventh-day Adventists today care about his time as a missionary in Europe? Yeah, good question, David. And I've, I think it's difficult to say which was his greatest achievement because he, he made contributions, powerful, rich contributions in, in several areas. I mean, his contribution to the Sabbath and, and the history of the Sabbath and his giving the, the whole Advent movement confidence in this doctrine was, was a real contribution. I mean, that good scholarly grounding in the history of the Sabbath um, helped the church in its outreach over, over decades. Um, he, his helpfulness in, in getting the church through some difficult periods was, was a powerful contribution. And then his contribution to mission, I think, was a, a lasting contribution. Lasting and informative because it was new territory. It was new, uh, a new horizon. And he had to learn by doing. And the church learned with him. So it was a learning process in mission. Difficult, but uh, a process that he was willing to undergo and help the church learn with him. And why should we be interested as Adventists today? <laughs> because there are new horizons of mission. They may not be geographic, but there are new horizons in culture across people groups. And, and that challenge still remains. And the way John Andrews helped us to negotiate those barriers, I think, was powerful. We can learn from him and be motivated powerfully by his spirit of sacrifice and his commitment to mission. That's a good point on which to end. Thank you so much, Dr. Gilbert Valentine, for joining us in two episodes to talk about John N. Andrews, the first official missionary sent out by the Seventh-day Adventist Church who went in September of 1874 and gave his life to the cause, dying in Switzerland, as, as we heard. Please join us again next week as we bring a new episode and continue to talk about the extraordinary history over 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission.